thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Christoph, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damian Christoph. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guy Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into our lives. And today we have a very special guest. Um, we actually have someone who's uh, been able to compete in the Hawaiian Ironman and qualify for the New York Marathon, uh, which is just incredible because we're going to be talking a lot about performance in today's episode on sports nutrition and how it actually impacts us. And even just for people who are just getting started into this, welcome to the show, Graham Turner. Thanks, guys. Graham, I mean, obviously you've done so many things and uh, you've been, you know, obviously maximizing your own performance, but you're also helping a lot of people um, get the best of their lives. Um, what are some of the key strategies that you focus on that is different than anybody else? Um, I think because of my background, I mean, for about 20 years, I worked in the corporate space, um, married to children. Also understand that while professional triathletes can train 20, 30 hours a week, your average age group just doesn't have that amount of available time. Mm. So what I really like to focus on is looking at the metabolic impact of the training so that if something that would normally take two and a half hours, we can get the same results in, say, half an hour, that gives people all that time back. So my strategy, a lot of my programs are very minimalist, but very much based around that science. Graham, one of the things I love about your website, the first thing that struck me as I looked at it was you talk about one of your number one priorities is being making sure that the athletes are healthy and safe. And I just thought that was great. I mean, it sounds so simple, but so often we can be so focused on the time and the you know the elite performance that we forget the fundamentals of just you know having a healthy, safe environment and having a healthy athlete, which at the end of the day is going to be a, a well-performing athlete. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. You you can be the fastest athlete out there, but if you're broken coming into a race, then you're just not going to perform. Um, and it's quite a simple strategy. You keep the athlete healthy and safe. They train to a better quality. They get a better quality outcome. So they end up being a faster athlete anyway. Graham, I've, um, I, love, I love your philosophies. I love your core values. I love all of that. And it's really, really good. And we've heard this before. Ben Greenfield's uh, said something very, very similar to us when we interviewed Ben. Um, it must be a few months ago now. It seems like at least maybe a year ago. But I know a bunch of blokes, heaps of them actually, who have done Ironman triathlons and it becomes their life. It consumes them. Their wives get cranky with them. Their kids don't even know who they are. And they're busting out 40 hours of training a week, it seems. And uh, they, they're they almost appear to blow out just almost a week before the race. Is this part of the reason why you've decided to go down this line, or have you just got extra secrets? Um, yeah, I've got extra secrets, basically. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, well, to be honest, I mean, a lot of well, the um, a lot of the understandings of how you know the metabolic effect that exercise has on people. I wouldn't call them secrets, but they're things that I've spent a lot of time understanding and researching. Um, I mean, anyone can pick up a book on, you know, how to train for 30 hours, but the issue I see with a lot of that training is, yes, there's a big impact on their, their family life, a big impact on their professional life, but doing that type of stuff long-term seriously beats up your immune system, beats up your joints, beats up your hormone system. I mean, it's not, not a healthy way to train. Well, they're up at four o'clock in the morning to go for a two-hour ride, and then they're you know back to get to work, and then at lunchtime they might go for a swim, 
or you know get home from work and do a run for a couple of hours and then somehow they've got a family life in there or you know whatever else so it's always baffled me that they can actually do that so this this particular model of training i love and i got so excited listening to ben talk about it so i'm a bit pumped right now yeah um, and it's interesting because like i actually know ben greenford very well in fact i coach for him over in the u.s and um We've hung out on a lot of trips to Thailand and places like that, so really kind of, kind of gel on a lot of these philosophies. So, Grant, what can you share with us? Some, um, you know, maybe let's start off with the first one. What do you, what is the fundamental key philosophy for to get this training right? I, I think if I was to summarise it in one one sentence, I'd say that doing well in triathlon is about applying power through good technique, and so. The philosophy is not so much about go out and do a lot of miles because all you're doing is reinforcing bad technique. So it's absolutely get the technique right first, whether it's running or swimming or even cycling. Then look at how you can apply power. I mean, by nature, we're we're aerobic creatures, right? You could take anyone on the street and if their car broke down 42 kilometres out of town, they could walk back home. It may take them 10 hours, but... They could do it, right? I mean, even if they had a Zimmerman frame, they would eventually get there. So the, the trick is not to train someone to cover 42 kilometers because anyone can do that. It's actually to give them the, the efficiency, the economy, and the strength to do that in the fastest possible time. And it's such a great point, Graham, because we are endurance creatures. And, and you look back through time and you see, for instance, some of the persistent hunters who would, who would have quite a lot of running involved in their just their everyday life and their everyday hunting. So you, we kind of have this idea now that, that running is bad for us and that, that you know swimming, perhaps not so much swimming, but particularly running, running is bad for us and that we're not designed to do it and our body's going to fall apart if we're running. And, and I often say to people, well, it's not necessarily running that's bad for us. It's just running badly that's bad for us. And it sounds yeah. like you're kind of on the same wavelength here. You know, can you elaborate on, I guess, us being designed to be endurance athletes? Yeah, I mean, if you look about what we, we typically use as a, a fuel source, you know, we'll use fat and we'll use oxygen. And so if you look at the stores that even a really lean cyclist, like in the Tour de France, have, they'll have about 60 hours worth of energy stored there. So we're actually designed to, to cover long distances and over time. In fact, typically the limiter that you see on a lot of that stuff is running more out of glycogen and those type of things. And, that, and that's where your nutrition and your pacing strategies strategies come in. Um, I mean, the running the running one is interesting. I had um, all of the cartilage taken out of my knees about 15 years ago um, based on doing martial arts. And I was told at the time to you know give up running or you'd need a full knee replacement. Um the best way to get me to do something is tell me I'm not allowed to do it. So it kind of thought, no, there must be a way to actually be able to to run efficiently and start using, you know, use your cartilage as lubricating or hinging the joint, not as a shock absorber because you're uh, you're landing flat on your heels and stuff like that. So where do you reckon this myth comes from, Graham? Like why is there this belief that running is so bad for us and that, that we're not designed to run? I'm not too sure if there's a belief that we're not designed to run. I think there is this belief that running is is bad for us. Um, I think, to be honest, a lot of it was perpetuated by the, um, the running shoe companies in kind of the 90s where they all were, you know, we've got a, a 25 mil piece of foam on our heel because that's where you're going to land. 
And so it was almost like by highlighting those points in the advertising magazines, it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, that's how you're supposed to land on your foot. And obviously you're just sending massive shock through your body in doing that. Um, great points. Now, obviously, Graham, there's, um, there's a whole lot of myths that go with exercise and we're really aware of a lot of the myths and we talk about it a lot, but we mentioned just before we started the call, you know, that you were keen on discussing fats in training and the, the nutrition myth out there is that people are going to get truckloads of carbohydrate into them. And one of the things that you uh, talk about doing is, is helping people keep their calories low and still get amazing performance with their, with their health. Is using fat part of your plan? Yeah, I use, I use fat um, from two perspectives. Um, and, and there's obviously the, the more common side around from a, um, from a fuel source perspective. As mentioned, you've got a limited amount of glycogen in your body. If you're going hard, you've got about an hour 40 worth of stored, um, stored sugar in your muscles and liver in the form of glycogen. So if you want to do marathons and Ironmans, you can't rely purely on that. You've actually got to rely on those, uh, those stored fat sources within your body. And so by actually doing things like, for example, your fasted workouts or trying to keep the, the blood sugar down through your diet, um, I always like the old belief that you should have a gel 10 minutes before the, um, the start of a race. I mean, everyone knows that. <laughs> but if you think about the science of that, what that's going to do, that's going to spike your insulin pretty much straight away. Totally. And all of a sudden you start relying on sugar going, well, hang on, shouldn't you be delaying when you're actually tapping into those sugar stores as late as possible. And so for my guys, um, with their nutrition and things like that, it's, it's not so much using a high-fat diet, it's more using a diet that will keep their blood sugar down so that they're more, their body's more efficient at, um, at oxidizing fats. Um, the other side that's quite interesting, that um, there was uh, a few years ago, now about 10 years ago, I got diagnosed with depression that really started me looking into these type of things. And I think it was actually Ben Greenfield on one of his podcasts started talking about how cholesterol is a hormone precursor. And I started thinking, well, with things like depression and even with training where you're looking to raise your testosterone levels and all those things, if you're not getting those fundamental building blocks in those cholesterols, you could take all the drugs you want and all the um, antidepressants and all that, but you're not actually producing those hormones in the first place. So by upping the good saturated fats in people's diet, it's amazing what it does to their mood and also to their strength. So, Graham, you mentioned before that getting the timing right in terms of you know any of those carbohydrates you're introducing is really important. So, you know that there is this sort of theory out there. You know, you see it in books like the Paleo Diet for Athletes, where they talk about you know training lower in terms of carbohydrates, sort of training your body to be more of a fat burner, and then yep. on race day using some more of those carbohydrates. Is that the sort of approach you're talking about? Yeah, to some extent, because the problem you get on racing it's um, not so much you find around the, the fuel utilization is that when you start pushing yourself at a, a fairly high level, it actually becomes more of a, a mental fatigue. Um, and Tim Noakes talks a lot about this in things like the central governor and stuff like that. So actually using um, sugars like gels, for example, later in the events actually tends to get over that mental fatigue. Um, 
You can also do it using things like branched-chain amino acids because, again, it's just placating the brain. But fundamentally, yeah, you're using a low GI source like a, a UCAN superstarch, but you sometimes do need to kick in a little bit of that brain glucose towards the end. Graham, just a question for, you know, especially because you do help uh, beginners too to kind of get running. But, you know, you're talking about shifting into this uh, more of a fat-based type of diet. How long does the body take to change in your experience to kind of, you know, get into that, uh, you know, switching from that high sugar glucose type of uh, diet that most people are on? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And I think people get confused between a high fat diet and a ketogenic diet. Um, and if you want to go to a ketogenic diet where you are predominantly within your body burning ketones, that can take um, several months to get to that. Um, it can take it only takes about a week or two to get into that nutritional ketosis, but to actually get your body efficient at using it can take several months. Um, if you're talking just purely about going to a higher fat and a lower lower carb but a low GI carb, you actually find that it's fairly quick. That only takes about two weeks to actually make that kind of change. Just changing tack a little bit, Graham. You know, one of the things uh, that I've seen you speak about a bit is the is about the immune system. And I think we've all seen it with people who start doing these longer endurance-based type sports is that they can sometimes get a bit run down. Their immune system can start to get a bit low and they can start sort of becoming susceptible to some of those coughs and colds and infections and all those sort of things. So yep. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your approach to that and, and how you get around that and enable people to stay healthy and healthy immune system whilst doing this sort of training. Sure. There's probably two, two answers to that question. Um, the obvious one is don't do the things that are going to suppress the immune system. Um, so I see lots of training programs where they're out doing um, two-hour runs. They'll do two or three of those a week, and they do the six-hour bike ride and all of those things. Um, the one thing that I've kind of learned is that there's no real metabolic adaption that you get after a two-hour run. So in terms of the impact on your, your blood and things like that, running for two hours or three hours or four hours really doesn't make that much difference. And so in terms of that benefit that you're trying to get, you don't actually need to do that amount of work. So it's funny, when I did um, Melbourne Marathon, which is where I qualified for New York Marathon, my longest run before that marathon in training was 21 kilometres. And so I'd That's never never actually done the longer runs. What I'd done was a lot of um, interval-based training. There's a lot of science around increasing your red blood cell count through the use of interval-based training. Um, And I'll admit it, I'm a nerd. I've actually got a hematocrit meter sitting in my uh, bedroom. (laughs) Um, Because I just love to test it. Oh, where did you get one of those from? Oh, one of those. I know. It's amazing what you find on eBay. It was sitting on there one day and I went, I'll have that, thanks. Um, So it's interesting. Like even just playing around with do you do 30-second anaerobic efforts or 90-second anaerobic efforts and the impact it has on your uh, red blood cell count. What is that? So... Um, I actually found it was around a minute was optimal for doing that. There you go. Yeah. There you um, go. But if you're doing that type of stuff, you're not putting that load on the immune system. Um, the other thing then is to look from a nutrition perspective. A lot of sports nutritionists, and I know from when I was trained, it's you need to look at your, your macronutrient ratios. But it's also going and looking at things like, okay, um, What's your iron levels that you're getting? 
Um, what are your, your vitamin levels that you're getting? Um, what's your creatine levels in the blood? Those type of things actually allow you to keep an athlete more healthy than purely looking at calories in, calories out. Now, Graham, this is really great because a lot of people, um, they get their nutrition program from their triathlete coach or their triathlon coach. They get their exercise program from their triathlon coach. The triathlon coach may be someone who's competed at a high level and decided that they're going to go and do coaching and maybe have done a coaching course. But they've been trained in traditional nutrition, uh, which, of course, is you know based on the food pyramid and high-carb and carb loading and all of that yep. sort of stuff. And all the studies and, that uh, Gatorade publish around... Um, how much yeah. lights and salt and all that, you know? Yeah, all the industry stuff. Like, it's all yep. based on industry stuff. And a lot of people can't see through that. Like, they literally can't see their throat. And I've actually just posted on Facebook that we are actually talking tonight. And I've posted some endurance athletes who train for an endurance, you know, club, triathlon club, and they've done all these Ironmans and et cetera, et cetera, hoping that they're going to listen to this because this is cutting edge, great stuff. But it's not new stuff, is it? This has been around for ages, all you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff, as you say, you know, dates back, you know, into the into the fifties and things like that. So yeah, you're right. It's I mean, you look at how long the Olympics and how long the marathon and all that have been around. Um, I think the other thing you probably find that I really focus on that I see in very few other training programs is weight training. Um, if I look at people in marathons, for example. When they get to around the 30k mark, you know, they talk about hitting the wall. Quite often it's because they lose their posture. The moment they lose their posture, their center of gravity moves behind where their feet is landing and all of a sudden they're carrying their center of gravity. So people will go out and run a lot, but unless you actually get in the gym and do that, that functional strength work, um, you've just got a major limiter there that you're not addressing. That's and it's great. funny, cool. people go out and do six Love hours that. running a week. You go, hang on, cut that down in half. Let's just do 30 minutes of specific weights in the gym and you'll actually be a better runner. Yeah. Get the technique right. Such a good program. Love that. Yeah, you never hear that, do you? Because people say, oh, don't get too big because you can't do all those sorts of things. And it's not about getting big. It's about maintaining you know, stability of the column and making sure your posture is great. And we talk about this in chiropractic too, that you know, if the head goes far forward and for every, I think it's every 10 centimeters away from the normal point or center of gravity, it, your head weighs almost two times its normal weight. You know, if you think about how much further forward you might be carrying, you know, what gravity is actually making you carry, it could yep. be... 10, 15, 20, 30, or 40 extra kilograms for, you know, if, if you're leaning forward when you're running and you're tired. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I had a, a friend of mine do Ironman cans, and he was just over 10 hours. And this guy was about 125 kilos. But if you look at the photos of him running, his posture is perfect. Where his center of gravity is, it's always in front of where his feet are landing. His head's in perfect position, as you just mentioned. You're going... You don't need to necessarily be a lightweight to run fast. You just need to manage where that weight is in your body. Mm. You know, Graham, you had uh, you had a martial art experience. Uh, so I mean, sort of passed, you know, and then got into into you know running and and uh, being a triathlete. So, what did you learn from that? From you know, from a totally different sport, and how did it apply? And did it benefit you in any way? Yeah, it's a good question. There's two areas. The one thing you learn in martial arts. Um, 
when I got my black belt, I was about 50 kilos. So I was the kind of guy they wanted to kick around the dojo. So <laughs> I, I quickly learned that it wasn't about being heavy. It was about um, how do you generate power. Mm. And in martial arts, you generate all your power from the core. Uh, that, that's where you kick from. That's where you punch from. And same when it comes to swimming and same to a large extent when it comes from running and even cycling in terms of um, core stability, all that becomes important. So, again, one of those overlooked areas. Um, that was probably the, the main the main thing that I learned from martial arts. The other thing is the way the body actually works. Um, for example, a lot of people in their running focus on the hand moving forward a lot of the power from your running actually comes from your arm moving backwards. That's what loads up the opposite leg to come through. It's exactly the same as when you throw a kick in karate. If you see the traditional martial arts, they pull the opposite elbow back. Um, yeah. That's actually loading up a kick on the opposite side, and it's basically creating a stretch reflex through the body. So in running, what that means is I spend a lot of time focusing on the arms going behind the body, to generate the power, not coming out in front of the person and upsetting their center of gravity. Oh, so interesting. Love it. That's awesome, Grace. So you started to touch on some really cool running technique stuff there. Obviously, you've spoken about the posture and the lean and the, and the pulling of the arms. What else is, you know, what else are your sort of first simplest tips for people when they're wanting to get their running technique right? Where should they be starting to get it, you know, as efficient as possible? Yeah. Then once you actually get the, the, um, basically the body position right and it's funny because the most common question you would think you get asked when you coach running is what part of the foot do you land on right because that's always the debate that people have around the coffee machine i always find if you get the technique right in the other areas of the body you naturally land on the correct part of the foot mm. so you can land on the front of the foot and have bad technique so once you kind of get that positioning right i actually find for most people it's cadence um, they've found with running that the most efficient cadence is around that 92 to 96 um, cadence. So what's that, 184 to 192 steps per minute? And that's actually to do with a thing called the muscle shortening reflex and storing energy in the body. A lot of your age groupers go out there and they, they ride their bike at 80 and they run at 80, and it's a really inefficient way to run from an energy perspective so i'll quite often give people the metronomes that you use for swimming the little beepers sit at above 90 and say all i want you to do is just for 500 meters try and hold this number and just build their cadence up it's a, this is groundbreaking this is mind blood it's fantastic it's great because i've often gone out and i'll be i'll admit this i've gone out for a run and I've gone, got to stride long, got to stride long. You know, what I learned when I was doing cross country when I was 13 years old was I've got to have long strides. And the longer the stride I've got, the better it's going to be. It's an efficient use of energy, but I get knackered and I get, yep. and I get discouraged and I don't enjoy running as a result of having long strides. But if I keep my stride shorter and increase my cadence, you're saying it's going to be easier. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you look at Gabriel Celesi when he broke the, um, the world record. Um, he had a, a cadence, or sorry, he had a steps per minute of 188. Now, he then added that into a stride length of 1.8 metres, right? This guy was 165 centimetres tall. So once you get the cadence up, then you start working on the stride length, right? And then those two, it's kind of almost geometry, isn't it? It's the length of the, um, the, length of the step times the number of steps gives you speed. 
Um, and that's why I find it funny when I look at a lot of training programs where people do a lot of running and they go like, run at this pace, run at this pace. But it's either cadence or it's stride length. They're the two things that are going to make you run faster. And so if you're not focusing on one of those two things when you're out training, then what are you actually doing? Mm. Wow. You know, you talked about, um, you know, people, you know, beating the world record and, you know, you helping people overcome their um, personal goals and everything. You know, you, you once wrote an article on goal setting um, and yep. you talked about, you know, that people set goals are actually putting in limitations. You know, how do you get around that? And why would you say, you know, tell people why, what you meant by that? And, um, and how do you, how does that apply into terms of training? Yeah, that's a good one. Cause I mean, obviously when, if you say to people, I don't believe in setting goals, then you can imagine the backlash that you get off most people. Yeah. Um, but it, like I've had runners, I had a runner once who came to me and he was a four and a half hour marathon runner, right? So um, he was just starting out and he said, I want to be, I want to run a sub four hour marathon. I said, no, forget it. Let's just actually work on improving all these things. And every day we're going to improve something else and get you moving forward and forward, right? Two years later, he ran a 254. Now, if we had have said, okay, no worries, let's get you to that goal, he would have got to that goal and walked away. He hadn't actually got to his potential. So the goal, it, it does become a bit confusing. The goal is to improve every day. So you are in a way setting goals, or my goal is I'm going to do three run sets focusing on these factors every week. That That is technically a goal. I'm talking about you don't set a goal of saying I'm going to run a a sub X marathon or I'm going to do an Ironman in under this time. Mm. Um, and it's interesting. I've had quite a few guys do sub 10-hour Ironmans first up, like on debut. We'd never, ever set that goal. We'd actually just set this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to focus on improving. This is what we're going to work on building. Because what that then, it just takes the pressure off them as well. I like that, Graham. Small steps of continual and never-ending improvement. That's uh, that's something I love. It's that sort of Kaizen principle, which I think is fantastic. So, to- yeah, no, sorry, and as it says on the bottom of the article, um, Kaizen is actually the tattoo I've got on my left ankle. So oh, there you go. <laughs> there you exactly go. That's the that's one of yeah. my favourite principles. So I'm, I'm yeah. right with you there, Graham. So, yep. hey, you mentioned a couple of things early that sort of sparked my interest. You mentioned Tim Noakes before. You had a little bit of a dig at Gatorade before as well. So I really want to hear your take on dehydration and cramping because Tim Noakes obviously been putting out some fascinating stuff about that recently. Um, so what's your take on that, Graham? Should we, you know, are we having enough hydration? Are we having too much hydration? What's your stance on that? Yeah. Um, so I guess I can talk at it from a, um, a personal experience perspective because I love racing in hot races, um, whether it's Hawaii or going over and racing in Thailand. And I found that I was racing in a lot of those races and I was doing the whole, you know, get on a trainer, weigh yourself beforehand, ride for an hour, weigh yourself after, that that old, um, old mm. standard. And what I found was I was getting off the bike three or four times to have a peak. And I went, this isn't right. Uh, this this makes no sense. If why is my body wanting to expel all this surplus fluid? And so I just started to go on the whole philosophy of if I'm thirsty, I'm going to drink. And I did it once at a race, and I thought I don't really care about this race. So if I blow up or cramp or anything like that, it doesn't matter. So I'm not going to drink um, beyond what I feel I need to. I'm not going to take any salt tablets. Got through it perfectly fine. And, and I find it funny when people say, oh, I knew I'd had plenty to drink because I was out on the run and my stomach was sloshing all around. It's like, 
that doesn't make sense to me. And then when Tim Noakes' book uh, Waterlog came out, it actually explained a lot of that about how the body maintains hydration within the cells and all those type of things. Then that kind of put the science to what I'd, I'd found in, in my own kind of um, test case of one. So, Graham, if we, what causes cramping then? Because that's a question people are going to be asking. They're saying, well, isn't it dehydration? Isn't that the problem? So what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, and that's, that's probably the one that people don't like the answer to the most. It's either bad technique or it's working a muscle beyond the level that it's trained to. Nice. So if you're someone that overstrides, you get a massive contraction through your quads. You get It's basically trying to stabilize your knee. And so that tension, that isometric contraction that you're getting the whole time, the whole uh, way, eventually leads to a cramp. Right? It leads to a spasm within that muscle. And you kind of look at the logic thing going, okay, if it's low salt, then tell me why you don't cramp in the whole body at the same time. Right? Why do you cramp only in a specific muscle? And why, when people have their tri-suits all covered in salt, go, yeah, I cramped because I was low on salt. If your body was in deficit, why would it be excreting? Why would it be getting rid of the thing it needs? Mm. Wow. Fascinating stuff, Graham. Like, just amazing. Like, just I just love this interview, and I think the boys agree with the, with me here. But, Graham, you actually have a book um, that's just been released. Could you tell us tell people where to get that? Uh, yes, yeah, so I have a, a book that talks about most of the philosophies around uh, running. There's a little bit of in about um, nutrition in there, um, and that's based on the fact that when I had that cartilage removed of having to learn how to run more efficiently so the book's called perpetual motion running um currently it's only available on ibooks i'm actually reformatting it over the next couple of weeks so i can do it on both kindle and paperback Um, unfortunately no one's come up with the science now that you can actually just write a book and publish it on every different electronic format (laughs) so where, where can people actually buy the book itself if they just go into itunes and uh search for perpetual motion running, they'll be able to find it there. Okay. Um, should say I'm a big fan of using um, iPads for books now because I could actually embed live video within the pages of the book. Yeah, that's great, so rather than just explain a drill, it actually has people um, demonstrating the, the drill within it. So I actually think it's a much better format than paperback anyway. Yeah, that's fantastic. I can't uh, wait to hear. Um, I actually start going into the Kindle, and I'm sure that's, that's going to be a success. Well, where can they find you uh, if they want to learn more about you when you're training? Uh, probably the best way to find me is through through my website, um, which is www.fit2tri.com.au. Um, I have links on there to, to a few articles that I write, and um, there's an easy way just to contact me through there. All right, Graham, thank you so much. Uh, it's just been an insightful interview, and uh, it's a great website, and the articles are on there. They're just fantastic. So thank you again to be on uh, The Wellness Guy Show. Thank you. Guys, uh, make sure you uh, listen to this. Obviously, you're listening to this episode, but make sure you go to facebook.com slash The Wellness Guys or The Wellness Couch. Comment on this uh particular episode and tell us what you think of Graham. Like us on Facebook while you're there. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and other strangers you think need a wellness update. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating and leave a comment on iTunes there. Until next week, begin creating wellness to your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show.